the heart of Christmas is this. There has been born for you a Savior, a Rescuer. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom begins a new four-part series titled, The Birth Announcement of God's Son. Though you may be familiar with the biblical Christmas story, when was the last time you pondered over just how remarkable the arrival of the Messiah truly was? Well, that's what Tom will examine as we walk through the birth of Christ found in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Today in part 1, Tom will look at a specific group of people who were perhaps the least likely to be included as the first recipients of the incredible good news to all people, the lowly shepherds. You'll be reminded why these shepherds were considered the least of the least and how the Christmas story changed lives like theirs forever. And Tom, if we're not careful, the Christmas story, as heard over the course of one's life, can begin to feel like old news, can't it? You know, Bill, that is exactly right. It is so hard for us as human beings to keep something fresh in our minds, even if it is extraordinarily important when we've heard it again and again. So can I just plead with you today, friend? Listen to this story as if you had never heard it before, because it is the most extraordinary news you will ever encounter in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, don't allow the truth of the story to become lost in the trappings of the season or to become lost in your familiarity with it. Instead, as we approach this amazing passage today, ask the Holy Spirit to really give you a fresh understanding and insight into the most extraordinary news we have ever heard. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. Well, if you are in touch with the news at all, you know that there was an event that made international headlines. On July 22nd, 2013, Prince George was born to William and Catherine, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. His birth was announced in many different ways. In fact, uh, there was some scandal, I guess, among the British because tradition was seriously broken when the first announcement of the birth itself came through a press release from the palace. But calm was soon restored when shortly thereafter, the traditional formal notice was posted on an easel outside of Buckingham Palace. The bells of Westminster Abbey rang along with the church bells across the country and even around the world and in other places friendly to to England. It was something to be remembered, the announcement of the birth of this little baby, Prince George. This is a long tradition, though, in English culture. Uh, the BBC tells us that when Edward VII, back in 1841, was born to Queen Victoria, there were very clear rules for the announcement of the birth that were actually set in stone. The first and most important announcement came by the firing of the guns from the park and tower uh, fortresses. But even before those guns had fired, the words of, of Edward VII's birth had begun to be published 
by word of mouth. And the reason they were getting out by word of mouth was in those days, it was the custom to have cabinet ministers actually attend the royal births, which of course led to the news breaking, as you might imagine, very quickly. Now that seems odd to us, but understand that the practice of politicians acting as witnesses and verifying royal births actually had begun back in 1688 with the birth of King James II's son. Because there were rumors that had circulated that the baby had been stillborn and the royal child had been replaced with an imposter smuggled into the royal birth chamber in a warming bedpan. An official announcement was made and there were 80 plus witnesses at the birth in order to confirm that in fact the son was a legitimate heir and heir to the throne. Because of the values that are placed on succession and lineage in, a, in any sort of a situation where there's a, where there's a king, royal births have to be officially observed, officially announced, and officially recorded for posterity. It's interesting when you consider all of that in contrast to Luke's simple account of the birth of Christ. When you read Luke 2, you are immediately struck by its quiet simplicity. Here was the royal birth exalted above all others. And yet, rather than in the palace, this royal son was delivered in a cave, a cave used for sheltering and feeding animals. Rather than an entourage of witnesses representing the great and the influential people of the nation, only Joseph and Mary, his poor and obscure parents, were there to witness the actual birth. Jesus' birth happened quietly, unnoticed, and unannounced. But it was not God's plan for Jesus' birth to remain in such obscurity. Instead, God had plans. He had planned the greatest birth announcement in history for the birth of his only son. The announcement is recorded for us in Luke chapter 2. We studied Luke 2 verses 1 through 7. That famous passage, of course, records the historical event of Jesus' birth, the actual birth, and the circumstances immediately surrounding it. I want us to study Luke 2, beginning at verse 8 and working our way down through verse 20. This passage is the divine birth announcement of Jesus. Let me read it for you. Luke 2, beginning in verse 8. Very familiar words, but let me encourage you to read it as though you'd never heard it before. You follow along as I read. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, 
Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Now let me remind you of the larger context in which these words appear. They appear for us, of course, in Luke's gospel. Luke explains to us in the first four verses of his gospel why he wrote these accounts. He says that he wrote to a man named Theophilus, probably a high Roman official, and he wrote to him so that Theophilus could know the historical foundation. He could know with certainty about the historical events on which his faith in Jesus Christ was founded. It serves the same purpose for us as well. Luke tells us in the first four verses of his gospel that he carefully investigated all of the things about which he's written. Not only were they handed down to him by the apostles, but he investigated them for himself as well. We know that for two years, Luke was Paul's companion while Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea on the coast of Israel. It was probably during those two years that, that Luke went from the length and breadth of Israel, visiting the places where Jesus had lived and taught and worked miracles, interviewing the people. In fact, he almost certainly interviewed Mary. Most scholars agree that that's where these birth accounts come from. He may have very well interviewed one or more of the shepherds as well. Remember, most of these people were still alive at the time that Luke was conducting his investigation. And it comes from Luke's interviews with the first-hand witnesses, Mary and probably the shepherds as well, that we learn the details of what happened the night of Jesus' birth. And specifically, it's how we learn about the announcement of Jesus' birth that's recorded in the verses we just read together. Now, in, in these verses, Luke unfolds several amazing details for us about the divine birth announcement of God's Son. And I want us to look at these details together. The first detail is the unlikely audience. The unlikely audience, who God chose in terms of announcing the birth of His Son. You see, the birth of Jesus Christ is remarkable not for what happened, but for what didn't happen. You understand that the the conception of Jesus was miraculous. It was to a virgin, a virgin conceived in her womb. But the birth of Jesus Christ was ordinary and pedestrian and natural. It was like my birth. It was, it's like your birth. It's remarkable for its utter simplicity, its complete lack of pomp and ceremony. I want you to think for a moment about the people that God did not invite to the birth of his son. There were no Roman political figures there to welcome the Son of God. At this point, Herod the Great, that wonderful architect, wicked man, but wonderful architect and leader of his people, was still alive. He could usually be found just a couple of miles away in Jerusalem, or if not there, six miles south of Bethlehem, he had built that massive palatial structure called Herodium, and that's often where he was. 
But he wasn't in Bethlehem that night. Quirinius, the Roman governor of Syria, the one who had, who had enacted the registration for the purpose of taxation, the, the very reason that Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem, he wasn't there. No Roman officials came from the nearby town of Caesarea. Not one leader of Israel was included. Jerusalem was only three to five miles from Bethlehem, but none of the 71 members of the Sanhedrin None of the scribes, none of the Pharisees, not the high priest, none of them were there. Not even the political leaders of the little town of Bethlehem. And do you remember the reason that Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem? They're there because every Israelite was required to return to his ancestral town and register for the purpose of Roman taxation. Some of the most important and influential people in the nation of Israel traced their lineage back to David, who was from Bethlehem. And so it's very likely that that night, Bethlehem was overflowing with the rich and the powerful, the influential. They were right there, but none of them were invited to the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, let's just be honest with each other. If we were God, it wouldn't have been so. Some of those important people would have been included and been invited there to witness the birth of Christ, but that's not what God did. Instead, God chose a most unlikely audience for his divine birth announcement. Look at verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. These shepherds, were told, were in the same region. That is, they were somewhere near the, the town of Bethlehem. The traditional shepherd's field, we can't be sure that that's where it is, but the traditional shepherd's field is about two miles away from the church of the Holy Nativity, where almost certainly, it's one of those few places in Israel where you can be fairly certain the event actually happened there. Regardless, they were in the fields that David himself had spent his youth in shepherding the flock, and they were living, it says, staying out in the fields. Now, some have cited the fact that these shepherds were living in the fields to argue that Jesus couldn't have been born in the winter because surely if it were winter, they wouldn't have been staying out in the fields. They would have instead been elsewhere. It must have been spring, they argue. However, Jewish authors tell us that sheep were kept in the fields near Bethlehem throughout the year. Even to this day, you can visit Bethlehem any point in the winter and you will find shepherds keeping sheep, not for tourist purposes, but because that's what they do. And in fact, the rabbis, the writings of the rabbis tell us that sheep were kept year round near Bethlehem because that's the source from which many of the sacrificial animals for the temple came. So it, it may have been winter. When was Jesus born? Let's take that question for just a moment. When was this? First of all, considering the year. As to the exact year of Jesus' birth, the best evidence, and you can read about this if you're interested in an excellent book by Harold Honer called Chronological Aspects in the Life of Christ. As the title suggests, it's not for the faint-hearted. But uh, in that book, he points to the best date probably being December of 5 B.C. or early January of 4 B.C., And the reason for that is we know Jesus was born before Herod the Great died. And we know Herod the Great died in April of 4 BC. So he had to have been alive long enough to have received the Magi and to have sent out the order to massacre the infants in Bethlehem. So 
December of 5 BC is a very possible date. Now, as far as specifically what day and month, we can't be sure. But I will say this. I know that it's popular among Christians today to to sort of trounce on the date of December 25th and say, no way it could ever have been that. That's a pagan date. I don't agree with that. I don't believe that. There is an ancient tradition that goes back on the date of December 25th. In fact, before Constantine, in the writings of a man named Hippolytus, who wrote in the early 200s. We know he died in 236 AD, and he wrote in his commentary on Daniel these words, For the first advent of our Lord in the flesh, when he was born in Bethlehem, was eight days before the calends of January. The word calends is just a word for the first day of the Roman month. So eight days before the first of January, December 25th. That was in the early 200s. A.D. that he wrote those words. So although we can't be sure of what day Christ was born, it's not recorded for us in the text of Scripture, December 25th has been the traditional date, and it has been so since the early 200s, and it is very possible that it is true. Now what we can be sure of, Luke tells us that these events, notice verse 8, were unfolding at night. During the daytime, the sheep were allowed to graze the fields. But at night, they were placed into crude pens or sheepfolds in order to protect them better from predators and thieves. On that winter night, there were several shepherds who were watching this one flock. It's called a flock singular together. Now, if they were doing what was normally done, typically the, the shepherds would each take a watch of the night. There were four watches of the night, typically divided up. And the others during... Uh, the time they were off would try to catch some sleep. The early evening, they would all be awake together, and then they would sleep until it was their watch. And so at some point during the night, we're not told what watch of the night or how many were awake initially, these shepherds are there. It is an ordinary night, like so many other ordinary nights on which they have kept sheep, shepherds. Now, you are so familiar with the shepherds being a part of the Christmas story that it just seems right and natural. But if you had lived in the first century and you were hearing this story for the first time, you would be shocked, perhaps appalled, that shepherds were involved. Because you see, although two of Israel's greatest leaders in history, both Moses and David, had served their stint as shepherds, and although God himself is called the shepherd of Israel, in everyday life, shepherds were often despised. They were considered to be the lowest of the low. This became increasingly true in the post-New Testament era. In fact, according to the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, there were several reasons that shepherds were simply not respected, were looked down upon. First of all, because of the nature of their work, those who became shepherds tended to be of a lower class. Shepherds were filling a role that was just a notch above day laborer. They were at the very bottom and therefore were looked down upon by the rest of the culture and society. Secondly, they were nomadic wanderers, really not having a home, not having a settled structure of family life. They were responsible to move from field to field, finding pasture for their sheep. And therefore, the lifestyle that comes with that was theirs. Because of that, thirdly, most people considered shepherds to be thieves. 
They were considered as those who had a hard time as they wandered around distinguishing between what was mine and thine. It was so bad that the rabbis eventually included shepherds in their list of occupations known for thieving and cheating. It's like when I was in college and seminary working my way through school, I worked as an electrician. And within the building trades, certain trades are known for having people who, who engage in certain kinds of sin, who are known for certain kinds of things. In the first century, it was that way with the shepherds. To be a shepherd was to immediately be suspected of being dishonest. In fact, it was eventually forbidden to buy wool, milk, or a goat from a shepherd, the rabbi said, because you had to assume that those didn't belong to them and that they had been stolen. They were considered so dishonest that in the time of the Talmud, they were not allowed to serve as judges or even as witnesses in court. There's another reason that they were considered to be the lowest of the low, and that's because their kind of lifestyle caused them to be banned often from the synagogues and from the temple. The kind of work they did kept them from keeping the normal religious observances that were required by the law. They were also kept from being ceremonially clean. Much of what they did exposed them to being ceremonially unclean and therefore unable to worship in a synagogue on the Sabbath or at the temple. The Midrash, an ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament says, no position in the world is so despised as that of the shepherd. One rabbi asked with amazement how in view of the despicable nature of shepherds, one can explain the fact that God allows himself to be called Israel's shepherd. That's who the shepherds were. They're not the polished ivory figures of our manger scenes and creches. And yet, shepherds were the only ones God invited to the celebration of the birth of his son. John Calvin writes, It would have been to no purpose that Christ was born in Bethlehem if it had not been made known to the world. But God's method of doing so, described by Luke, appears to us very unsuitable. First, Christ is revealed but to a few witnesses, and that too in the darkness of night. Again, though God had at his command many honorable and distinguished witnesses, he passed by them and chose shepherds, persons of humble rank and of no account among men. It's really no different for us, is it? Like the shepherds, we too are utterly unworthy to receive God's grace. We too are utterly unworthy to worship the Son of God. But like them, God has shown us grace in spite of what we are, in spite of what we deserve. You see, if you ask yourself the question, why did God choose the shepherds? The answer is because this is how God normally works. My mind goes immediately to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You remember Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. There are some, but there are not many who are wise in the world, not many who are mighty, who are people of nobility. But instead, look at 1 Corinthians 1.27. Here's how God normally works. 
God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. In other words, God typically chooses the nothings and the nobodies. Why? Well, he explains it in the very next verse. So that no man may boast before God. I can promise you this, not one of those shepherds ever walked around saying, we deserve to be there that night. God alone got the glory. It's the same with us. Shepherds of most unlikely audience for the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, The Birth Announcement of God's Son. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.